I'm glad you found your way to the Your Vet Wants You to Know podcast for more information about how to care for your pet. The show is designed to be educational and entertaining, but not to give a specific diagnosis or treatment for your animal. That job belongs to your veterinarian who knows your pet and wants to talk to you about what's going on with them. I'm here to be a resource only. Thanks and enjoy the show. As a curious pet owner, have you ever taken to the internet for more information? Maybe you want to know why your pet is itchy and what you can do about it. Maybe you're frustrated about the ear infections. Maybe you're looking for ways to make veterinary care more affordable. Instead of wading through a sea of information that may not be reliable and in some cases may be harmful, here is what your vet wants you to know. I'm Dr. Brittany Lancelotti, board certified veterinary dermatology specialist. Join me to get the information you're looking for to care for your pet. If you're curious about your pet, then your vet wants you to know. Welcome everyone to today's episode of Your Vet Wants You to Know. I am joined again by Dr. Nellie Choi. Dr. Choi was with us for the episode on allergy mythbusters. She is a veterinary dermatologist practicing in Hong Kong and one of my favorite people in the whole world. Aww. She and I were resident mates at the Animal Dermatology Clinic in Pasadena when we were studying veterinary dermatology as residents. And I am so thankful that she is here again to join me today to talk about ringworm. Welcome back, Dr. Choi. Hi, Dr. Lancelotti. Thanks for having me again. I'm so excited. I know it's been so long, I think, since we did that last episode. A lot has happened since. But yeah, I can't believe I'm in Hong Kong for a year and a half now. I think when we last did the episode, I was just settling in and in quarantine, I think. Yes, you had all that extra time on your hands. And you're like, sure, let's go ahead and record an episode. I'm stuck in a hotel room. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's crazy. A a year and a half is just, I mean, a lot has happened. But then at the same time, I've kind of just been stuck here because traveling is quite tricky at the moment. So yeah, it's just kind of chugging along. (laughs) And you are quite possibly one of the best people to come on and talk about ringworm because it is really prevalent in Hong Kong, huh? Yes. So definitely not something I expected when I moved here. We were always taught that ringworm is a very common disease seen in general practice. And that was kind of how I felt working in LA and also in Perth and Australia as well. I did not see many ringworm cases come through referral. But in Hong Kong, I I don't know if it's the weather or just the severity of ringworm cases we have is so profound that I would see these at least once a week, if not twice. So in in my entire kind of year and a half that I've worked in Hong Kong now, I've probably seen more ringworm quite possibly than my entire 12-year veterinary career. And do you have any particular pets that you remember or something that kind of sticks with you when you think about treating ringworm? I do. I think it's kind of more of the zoonotic side of things that usually really stand out. I always get very surprised, though, that there aren't more owners that live with ringworm pets that have ringworm themselves. Because I, you know, mm-hmm. we always ask this question, right? Especially with new consults, anybody at home or in contact with the pet have any skin issues or lesions. And usually with the ringworm cases, I would ask every recheck as well. It's like, is everyone at home still okay? You know, free of lesions. And 
99% I reckon would say, oh yeah, everyone's fine. And I'm like, you guys wearing gloves, you know, wear the topicals and the bathing and all that. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's just it always shocks me that they're living in a small apartment with their ringworm pets and everyone manages to kind of stay clear. But the one case that I do remember very strongly that I still see for rechecks now is one that I remember asking them the question, does anyone at home have any skin problems? And at first they said no. And then they're going, oh, actually, our dad has, you know, like a fungal skin disease on his feet. And the first thing I thought of, oh, athlete's foot. We know there are papers written about pet owners with fungal diseases on their skin and rubbing their cats with their feet on the floor. And, and mm-hmm. immediately I go, oh my goodness, this could be kind of a little bit more gross than a normal ringworm. <laughs> and then, but when I fungal checked the cat, you know, it was woodsland positive and it came back MKNIS on the fungal culture. So I was like, oh, I was so sure this was going to be, you know, like a trichophyton case of, you know, from the athlete's foot, but I was proven wrong. You know, every time it comes in for a recheck, I cannot think of anything else besides the first time them telling me that their dad had fungal foot disease and, you know, potentially has contact with a cat. (laughs) So you talked about a couple things there that I think our listeners may be a little bit confused about. So we're going to get into a little bit about what ringworm is. We're going to get into why we have to be careful when we're around these pets that have ringworm. And we'll get into what a woods lamp is and how we use that in the diagnosis and figuring out what's going on with the animal. So let's talk about this name. Why do we call it ringworm? And what are we actually describing? That's such a good question because there's often misconceptions still of the word worm and thinking it's a parasite, you know, kind of what people think of heartworm or intestinal worm. But as we know, ringworm is just a terrible name. It's not a worm, but a fungal infection. And in people, it can create this kind of red circular ring lesion on their skin when they're infected. And we don't actually see this very classically in pets. So when people, you know, look at their pet skin and they have ringworm, that they don't see that circle. If anything, most people think they see ringworm in the pets, but it's actually an epidermal cholerate, which is more often than not a bacterial skin infection or known as pyoderma. But the red ring lesion is only really seen in people. Yeah, I think that's where people get hung up. This common name ringworm is completely wrong from what is actually causing the skin problem. So it's really important to kind of be able to figure out what is actually going on on the animal's skin because sometimes bacteria can look like ringworm, which is a fungal infection. And there are certain types of animals that are going to be more at risk for developing ringworm. What type of animals do you mostly see develop this disease? So most of the cases that I see through clinics now are dogs and cats in Hong Kong. So within the population of animals I see, I definitely see a lot more cats infected with ringworm compared to dogs. And we know that with Persian cats, they're often known to be quite predisposed to this disease. And in dogs, Yorkshire Terriers is the dog breed that seem to get ringworm or refractory ringworm more commonly. 
But to be honest, at the moment, I don't think I see a tendency to have more Yorkshire Terrier ringworm positive dogs or even Persian ringworm positive cats. I seem to see a broad number of breeds. So, you know, domestic short hairs, exotics. I've even in Australia, you know, Sphinx were quite popular. So those are those like hairless looking cats. I've seen ringworm on those cases as well, even though really, you know, there's not much hair on those little kitties. (laughs) Um, But I don't tend to see kind of that textbook Yorkshire Terriers and Persian cats only for sure. Definitely kind of a large number of different breeds. And I have a feeling a lot of the cats I see now with ringworm could be due to the poor breeding within uh, Hong Kong pet stores. So unfortunately, a lot of local pet stores here have kind of a questionable source of puppies and kittens. And smuggle puppies, smuggle kittens are quite known potentially from mainland China. And also there aren't any registered breeders that would have papers with pets. But these pets are usually still sold at a premium price. Like they're not cheap, even though they don't come with legitimate breeder papers and things. But I guess it's a supply and demand issue, like with anything, you know, people might not be very educated about the kind of scary dark side of breeding in a unsanitary environment or a poor breeding facility. So they just see this cute little kitten or puppy at the window shop. And unfortunately, it does create that demand. So yeah, hashtag adopt don't shop for sure. But I really suspect the high number of cases of these ringworm patients that come through is due to irresponsible breeding. Yeah, I think there's a lot of data to show that animals coming from catteries, where there are a large number of cats living in a small area, and they're all kind of on top of each other, sharing the same germs in the environment, Mm -hmm. they're more likely to develop ringworm. And they're also going to be a lot more stressed if you have a lot of animals living in a small area. If the animal becomes stressed, that lowers their immune system's ability to clear these infections. So if they come in contact with ringworm from another cat, they're going to be too stressed to be able to fight off that infection. So that's when we see a lot more of those infections as well. I see a a lot more Yorkshire Terriers and Persian cats here in Los Angeles than other breeds with ringworm, but any breed can potentially develop this disease. So, you know, I recently had a pit bull that developed ringworm because he was chasing squirrels. And so there's a specific type of ringworm that squirrels and rodents will carry. And that dog not only caught the squirrel, but caught the ringworm that was on the squirrel and had it all over his face as a result of that. But certainly animals that have a compromised immune system, so they're not as able to fight off infectious disease, young puppies, young kittens, or older animals that may be on some type of medication to suppress their immune system for certain diseases or animals that are in high stress situations like shelters or catteries. Those are the ones that we want to watch out for because they could potentially be at a higher risk than normal pet animals. If we are suspicious that an animal has ringworm, there are a lot of different things that we can do to search for clues to figure out if that truly is the disease that they have. 
I want to talk about the different types of tests that we can do and kind of ask you, what is the most fun diagnostic test for you to do as a dermatologist when you're trying to identify ringworm? Most fun. I think for me, the most fun are the ones that I get an answer immediately because it's so gratifying to know an answer within minutes. I'm old school. I love doing skin cytology on my suspected ringworm cases, Woods Lamp, and usually I do a fungal culture as well, but that typically does take about three to four weeks for me to get the results back. So for skin cytology and Woods Lamp, those are probably my favorite in consult diagnostic tests for ringworm. Unfortunately, there's no one gold standard ringworm test. These are all what we call point of care testing. And for fungal cultures, one of the other really fun things I like doing is using a toothbrush technique to collect the dander, the the scales and the hair from my patients and submit that for fungal culture at the lab. I find cats tolerate this a lot better than kind of plucking the hairs from the areas and And also I get to sample the entire cat from head to tail quite easily without them getting grumpy at me. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, so that's definitely one of my favorite techniques is just submitting the whole toothbrush to the lab after I've kind of brushed the cat all over to collect my sample. So you've gone through a couple different tests there, skin cytology, woods lamp, and fungal culture. And these are all really helpful for us. And so the skin cytology just means that the veterinarian is going to take a slide and kind of lift up some of the crust that is on an area where the skin is affected and just press that slide to the underlying skin so that we can see what's happening under the microscope. And we're looking for things like white blood cells, which are an indication that there is some inflammation going on. The body may be trying to fight infection. But for ringworm, we are looking for fungal spores under the microscope so that we can see, is this infection actually there? Woods lamp, I would have to say, is probably my favorite Mm -hmm. test to do. And the woods lamp is this really fun, special lamp that kind of looks like a black light. It's a little bit different. But when you turn the woods lamp on and you turn the lights in the room off, if the animal has ringworm, the hairs that are infected with that fungus will start to glow a bright green color. And we've got some really good pictures of this on the website, yourvetwantsyoutoknow.com. So you can go and see those pictures of what we're talking about. And the area where the animal's infected will just light up bright green. So it's a great way for us to see pretty immediately that this is very likely ringworm and we need to get the animal treated. And then, like Dr. Choi mentioned, the fungal culture takes a few weeks to get back, but that's going to be a definitive test for us. The culture grows the fungus and tells us exactly what species it is. That helps us to figure out what treatments we want to use, and it helps us to monitor the response to treatment and make sure that the animal is improving. Any issues as far as using the woods lamp that people should be careful of? Yeah, definitely. I've noticed it is different from a black light because I have also had clients that would want to continually monitor their pets at home and they would buy what I presume to be a black light off the internet and kind of shine it over their pet regularly and 
tell me, you know, that it's getting better or getting worse. But quite often, the wavelength of the light that's being emitted out of the black light is quite different from a wood's lamp. So it's not going to show that ringworm apple green glow that we see on a black light as compared to a clinical wood's lamp. And the cost of them is actually quite different as well. So you can get a pretty cheap black light on the internet for probably like 10 bucks, but a really good wood's lamp that we use in clinics where I prefer the magnifying ones where you have a nice kind of magnifying glass attached to it and it's a plug-in, those usually cost a little bit more money. The other thing also is learning how to use a wood's lamp appropriately is really important. Quite often people may mistake uh, positive fluorescence, but not the actual green color fluorescence as a positive ringworm indication. So knowing that lotions, creams that you put on pets, or even just dry skin like dandruff, All of those, even lint, for example, can glow under the woods lamp, but it doesn't have that apple green color. So we need to identify the apple green color, which is the characteristic ringworm glow. Yeah, and I'll have a picture of that magnifying woods lamp that you described on the website if people want to see exactly what type of tool we're talking about. There'll be lots of pictures of the hairs glowing that apple green color on the website as well. So it is pretty striking when you do see it. But yeah, a lot of false positives that can be mistaken for ringworm if it's being done by someone that doesn't quite understand exactly what it is that we're looking for with this tool. So it's helpful to have a specialist involved if you're still worried that your pet's skin maybe isn't quite getting better. How about treatment? Once we know that an animal does have ringworm, how do we get control of this infection and stop it from spreading? You know, I always talk to my clients about the three aspects of clearing the disease. Do you kind of do the same thing? I do. So I always tell owners is that three pillars of treatment that we need to get on top of ringworm. And unfortunately, it still can take a couple of months to have complete resolution, but at least we'd be on the right path to kind of speed things up. So all three things are usually recommended to be done at the same time. So this is oral antifungal. So this is usually by mouth. The second is a topical antifungal. This is either with bathing or full body rinses of an antifungal. And number three is environmental decontamination, which really just means a lot of cleaning at home and the right way to do the cleaning. So I usually give clients actually a handout of the household chores that they need to be doing for the next couple of weeks or months and to minimize the reinfection of potentially contaminated hairs or dead skin that could reinfect their pet during the process. We want people to go through and do the environmental decontamination to Mm -hmm. really clean their home Mm -hmm. and get all of those extra fungal spores out of the environment so Mm -hmm. that the animal is no longer coming in contact with them so that when we're testing to monitor response to treatment, you're not seeing just random fungal spores from the environment being carried on the animal's hair, Mm -hmm. leading to false positives when we're trying to see if the animal's getting better. Mm -hmm. 
can so that other people and other animals in the environment are not coming in contact with those spores and leading to infection, you know, within the family as well. Can we talk just briefly about the medications that we might use Mm -hmm. when we're treating ringworms? So those oral antifungals, typically it's going to be with different medications such as itraconazole, terbinafine, fluconazole, or ketoconazole are primarily the antifungal medications that veterinarians might recommend. What are some things that pet owners should watch out for if they're using these medications? So one of the most common side effects I would usually warn owners about while giving the oral antifungals to their pets is gastrointestinal upset. So vomiting, diarrhea, poor appetite. The absorption of most of these antifungals are improved when there is food in the belly. So it it helps to feed them a nice full meal and then give the oral antifungals after. So hopefully that also minimizes the amount of gastrointestinal upset. But it is something I would probably see in one in 30 pets. So it's not super common, but definitely every time I prescribe it, I would warn owners about the possible side effect of having vomiting and diarrhea. And if that happens, I always tell them to let me know immediately and stop the medication because we don't want to have to go through weeks and weeks of the pet obviously having gastrointestinal upset. Yeah, I also warn owners that in addition to worrying about tummy upset, I also worry about the potential for the animal's liver being affected. Yeah. Yeah. So most of the time when I'm using these medications, we'll do some blood work before we start to make sure that there's nothing wrong with the liver ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And then if they're on these medications for more than a month, which they usually are, we'll check that blood work while they're taking the medication to make sure that the liver is tolerating it. So some that your veterinarian may recommend is some blood work before and during treatment of ringworm. How about the different topicals? I know there's a couple products that I will commonly reach for when I'm treating ringworm. Can you talk a little bit about the topical treatments that you would recommend and what you warn owners about when they're using those? Absolutely. So the two topical antifungals I use the most in Hong Kong is a topical enoconazole concentrate. And I usually require owners to dilute it one to 50 with water and soak the patients with it. It doesn't have too much of a smelly odor, so I do like that, but also it doesn't require a rinse like you would with a shampoo. Most pet owners seem to find this doable and you know not too stressful. The other option is a myconazole chlorhexidine shampoo that's quite commonly prescribed by general practitioners as well. And it does have an antifungal property also, but the downside is it does require a 10 minute soak, which for some cats that find it quite stressful to be bathed, the prolonged time they need to be in the bathroom sink to be kind of lathered, washed and rinsed can be a little bit too much. So a lot of pet owners obviously prefer the kind of shorter duration of the soaking. So they usually may choose the concentrate instead of the shampoo. And also I do require clients to do twice weekly. So it's pretty frequent and quite labor intensive for some. But unfortunately, that's really what's required to really get on top of the ringworm. Mm -hmm. I will commonly use the myconazole chlorhexidine shampoo as well. For 
cats, I'll also sometimes reach for a myconazole chlorhexidine mousse because that is a little bit less stressful than the shampoo and it does put that active ingredient directly on the hair. And that can be helpful in areas that maybe aren't as big. So if it's not the entire animal that's affected, maybe they've just got one little patch on the side of their neck, that might be a little bit easier for them. Some veterinarians will use a lime sulfur rinse as well. The lime sulfur does tend to be very, very stinky. So I, I try and use the myconazole chlorhexidine shampoo instead because it's a lot kinder to my pet owners than the stinky lime sulfur dip. (laughs) What sort of precautions should pet owners take when they're caring for cats or dogs that have ringworm? So definitely looking out for lesions themselves. If they suddenly develop a rash or that kind of classic ring on their skin, I would tell them to go see their human GP and have them get it checked out and maybe mention to the doctor that there is a ringworm positive pet at home. So hopefully they can prescribe the right medication. But other than that, it's a lot of cleaning. I know it's quite stressful for a lot of owners. And I always kind of say, look, if you see any of your pet hair floating around, just assume that it's ringworm on there and make sure it's cleaned out as quickly as you can and as frequently as you can. Yeah, wear gloves, make sure you're washing things like crazy and talk to your family doctor if there is something that pops up on your skin while you've got a cat with ringworm at home or a dog with ringworm because it can be something that humans can catch. And particularly if there's anybody in the home that is on any type of chemotherapy or medications to suppress their immune system, we want to try and keep the animal isolated away from that person so that they don't develop infection. You know, ringworm overall is this fungal infection that's very common in young kittens and puppies and older animals whose immune systems may be compromised, certain breeds like Yorkies or Persians. As far as treating these animals, what do you think overall is kind of the best approach to them? So I usually would base it on the patient because even though we talked about the three pillars of treatment, so the environment, the oral, and then the topical antifungals, I don't always have the opportunity to use all three on each patient. So for example, if there's a patient that's really immunocompromised and on chemotherapy, I don't find that I would be able to use oral antifungals for those patients in case it does push them into a more unwell state if they have a liver tumor, for example, and already have elevated liver enzymes, or even patients that have diabetes and Cushing's that could also already have other systemic issues, then I find that oral antifungals can be a bit risky for those patients. And so we have to potentially just rely on topical treatment and environmental cleaning to really get on top of the ringworm. And I do warn owners sometimes that we may not be able to completely get full resolution of the ringworm or stop treatment at any point in time. So that can be a a bit daunting for some owners, but it's better than risking having their pet become more sick with a oral antifungal just for the sake of making sure the ringworm clears out faster. When would you say that an animal's ringworm infection is resolved? That's a really great question because I find that 
owners usually want to define it with the number of weeks of treatment, which in ringworm cases is very difficult to predict. So I never tell them an exact amount of time. So it's very different from taking a course of antibiotics for a urinary tract infection, for example. For ringworm, I always tell owners we need to have two negative fungal cultures in a row to be able to say, okay, we're finally cured. And that's when we can consider stopping treatment. But otherwise, if it's just say, oh, yeah, you know, one month of treatment, and we're done. That's definitely not how ringworm works. Yeah, I use that same kind of marker as far as being able to tell if an animal's infection is gone. So I tell owners, we're going to continue our treatment with our oral antifungal, our topical antifungal, and our aggressive environmental cleaning and decontamination until we have two negative fungal cultures at least two weeks apart, more like three or four in some cases. And we have complete resolution of the animal's skin disease. So I want that hair to be completely grown back. I want all the scabs to go away. I want it to look like a normal animal. And I want to have two negative fungal cultures that were taken at least two to four weeks apart. So once I have that, then we can stop everything and the animal's back to normal. But not every animal responds as quickly as others, especially if there's lots of other animals in the household or they have a compromised immune system. So it's really important to just continue those recheck exams and keep up with the veterinarian's recommendations until they say, all right, the infection's completely cleared. Oh, ringworms, like a bait of my existence. Yeah, I think pet owners just need to understand that this can take a while to clear. And as long as you're following up with those rechecks and your veterinarian's recommendations, hopefully you just continue to make that steady progress towards resolution of the disease. I want to make sure everyone's aware. Dr. Choi is on Instagram. She is at DermVetHK, and she has been posting some really interesting pictures and posts about some of the dermatology cases that she sees. So if you guys are on Instagram, go ahead and follow her at DermVetHK for some really cool pictures and information there if you'd like to learn a little bit more about veterinary dermatology. A lot of family veterinarians are very comfortable managing pets with ringworm, but if you would like to find a veterinary dermatologist near you, there is a link on the website yourvetwantsyoutoknow.com under the resources tab so that you can consult with a specialist there. You can also view the references for today's show in the show notes on the website, as well as see lots of pictures of animals that have ringworm, as well as some of the tests that we talked about, like the woods lamp, cytology with fungal spores under the microscope, and fungal cultures, so that you have a better idea of exactly what ringworm looks like and what we are actually looking for when we're doing those tests. And if your pet has had ringworm and you've gone through this process, I would encourage you to Join the Facebook group, Your Vet Wants You to Know, and tell us about your experience. Share your pearls of wisdom with other pet owners out there who may be going through the same thing that you went through and give them some encouragement that, yes, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and they can get through this also. 
Dr. Choi, we end each episode of the show with a segment called Scratching the Itch. And this is a segment that is designed to highlight something, either a human interest story, a product or website, just something that provides relief or makes you feel good. Hence, Scratching the Itch. Do you have a Scratching the Itch for our (laughs) listeners today? I do. It's kind of a gross one. So (laughs) it's probably going to make everyone's skin crawl because it certainly did to us. Well, I I remember telling you this when it happened. So I know you already know this story. So about a month ago, we had a bird mite infestation in our study room. Um, Basically took over part of some of our clothes on our desk, storage boxes, and even my husband. And at first, he kept feeling these little crawling sensation things on his neck and on his arms. And I couldn't really understand why it was just happening to him. I honestly thought he was just maybe going stir crazy from all the COVID lockdown restrictions. And he was just being a a hypochondriac. And then later on, we actually could visibly see these little looks like dust, I guess they they were tiny, but they were definitely moving and crawling on all these things. And like a true nerd that I am, I use a bit of sticky tape and stuck some on and then took them to work so I can look at it under the microscope and identify them as bird mites, which gave me kind of, you know, boards flashbacks. And (laughs) for anyone listening, as veterinary dermatologists, we have to know like a countless number of different types of mites when we take our boards certifying exam. So lots and lots and lots of pictures of disgusting mites Mm -hmm. underneath the microscope. So (laughs) you were very easily able to identify that this was a bird mite that had infested your home. Definitely. It was very triggering. Um, And it took us probably about a week to figure out where they were coming from because all we could see was where they were landing, but we didn't know where the source was. We thought, did we bring it home from work. We just had no clue. We, we don't have any birds, like pets at home. So somehow we kind of looked up and realized they were kind of falling out from our aircon unit. And we hadn't turned our aircon on for a couple of months because it's been quite cool. And so we had to call an AC man to come and find out why there's these creepy crawly things. And, and there, there were like hundreds of them at, at some oh point. God, it, it was really? just, it was just kind of you know traumatic because we had to pack all our clothes away and, and and you know tie them up in trash bags. Obviously, I couldn't afford throwing all my clothes out. Um, yeah. And so one of the things we did actually do, we went out and bought some kind of flea spray and started spritzing the whole room, thinking <laughs> that we could get rid of everything. But <laughs> we would find that they would die immediately, but then we'd wipe them off. And then within like a couple of hours, a new batch would just crawl over the area where we just sprayed. So oh, it was no. not a long-term solution. So thank goodness we got the AC guy to come in and he took the kind of aircon unit apart and said, there's like this giant hole, you know, from the outside to the duct. And I was like, well, can you seal it up? And so he just kind of stuffed all these plastic bags through it and then put a sealant on the outside on the rim and said, yeah, that should be fine. And luckily it probably took about a day 
way after for the rest of the population to die out. But yeah, I, safe to say we, we don't have any more bird mite problems now. But that was a pretty disgusting period of time for us. And I felt so bad for my husband because he's the one that usually sits on his study desk. So I think they were just crawling on him more because he was sitting literally under the AC unit. And he just kept feeling them. And he's like, it's there, it's there. And he'd point on his face and then I would see them. And then we're like chimps, you know, at some point I was just picking these things off him. And (laughs) it was just ridiculous. Now we can laugh about it. But during that time, we were pretty traumatized. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I would be too. And I'm sorry to anyone listening who is now scratching themselves like crazy. Dr. Choi took a very different approach to the scratching the itch segment. (laughs) We love her for it. (laughs) But next time we'll maybe have something that just makes you feel good instead of feeling horribly itchy. (laughs) Well, Dr. Choi, thank you so much for coming on today and talking about ringworm. I hope that some pet owners have gotten some really good information and feel more equipped at being able to deal with this infection now if their animal has been diagnosed with it. And for those out there who have enjoyed the show, please take a moment to go ahead and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Check out the website for those pictures as well so that you can get some more information there and join the group and tell us about your experience so that other pet owners know they're not alone as well. But thank you so much, Dr. Choi. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Dr. Lancelot. I had a lot of fun. Ringworm can be kind of a grim diagnosis at first, but there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. And for all of you out there listening, I look forward to your next visit with your vet wants you to know. <laughs>